morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom. Oh, <laughs> my name is Tom Gardner. I'm one of the elders here. Wanted to welcome you to Kona Hills Presbyterian Church. If you're watching uh, online, if you're doing the live stream, please don't adjust your monitors. There's nothing wrong. I actually am growing my beard this long. Um, it's not some wild gray badger attacking my face. You're you're actually okay there with the monitors the way they are. But uh, did want to welcome you and say. Um, last night, uh, especially if you have younger children like Claire and I do, we have older children as well, but if you have younger children, maybe you took part in the great fall candy harvesting that happens in October. Um, you sent out the workers into the field and they came back with the, the riches of the, of the growth of the, the candy industry. Um, and we did that too, and it's always sort of fun to see the children dress up into characters that they like and to go out and sort of be with the other kids, uh, socially distanced this year, of course. Um, and oddly enough, that reminded me of the book of Ephesians. Um, now, um, let me clarify that uh, the Apostle Paul, I don't think, celebrated Halloween. Um, I certainly don't want a video of this uh, coming back to haunt me. But, uh, um, but I was thinking about that passage in Ephesians 4 where he tells us to uh, take off our old self and put on our new self. And we think when children are putting on these costumes and they go through all that preparation to do that and then at the end of the evening they take them off and in a lot of cases they never put them back on again. As Christians uh, we have a new self and we're called to be reminded to take off the old self and to put on that new self and so it's my prayer that um, as we go through the service today, as we hear God's word, as we come to this table that we will be reminded that we have a new self and that we need to praise and glorify God for that as well. Um, we do have some announcements uh, here today. Let me reopen my iPad here. Um, they should be back behind me. Um, they're all important, of course. Uh, today is the last day for the baby bottle campaign, benefiting uh, Mosaic Pregnancy Care Center. Um, if you forgot to bring it today, you can certainly uh, drop it off at the church office um, as soon as you can. Be it the pastor, an elder, or deacon. Oh, yeah, and bring it to the fall festival. That's true. And that's our, our next uh, announcement. Very important, there is a fall festival today, okay? Uh, it'll be at Mixtroff's house. That starts at 3 o'clock, um, rain or shine. And the reason I say that is because we have a lot of food that if people don't show up, uh, I don't know that the sessions will need that much chicken. I, I don't think, I mean, maybe, but um, we, we definitely want you to come and get the food, if nothing else. Now, the weather forecast has been kind of on again, off again, but I think at this point, I think we're supposed to have some good weather for that. It's going to clear up, um, and it should be a great time of fellowship uh, together. Um, please be sure uh, to drop off um, a donation for that, that food at the back table. Um, this is sort of like our family uh, fellowship lunches that we do, um, and it, it's, it should say on the, the, the screen behind me, but you know, $2 for kids, 4 to 9 $4 for ages 10 and up, and certainly no more than $20 per family. But please make sure you drop that off, and then again, make sure you come out for brunch today. That'd be awesome. Um, I think the other announcements are sort of self-explanatory there. Um, let's turn our hearts and minds to the Word of God. We're going to be looking at John 6, verses 48 to 58. Um, I will be the um, leader in this, and you all will be the people. And it is there. Okay, good. So join me as we come to worship. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, 
so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Sorry, let's pray. Father God, you are amazing and awesome and majestic. And we come to you, Father, small and weak in ourselves, but full of strength through the spirit that you give us. And so we rejoice in that spirit and come before you this morning, seeking to throw our praises at your feet, seeking to bow down before you and to say, we love you, we worship you, and we adore you. And yet, Father, the cares of this world get in the way of doing that. And so we pray, Lord, that you would take those from us and help us to be focused solely upon you so to that end, I just ask, Father, that you would bless our time, that you bless the word, that you bless our coming to the table. And as I said, Father, in all things, we seek to glorify you. And through your spirit, have the power to do that. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand and continue to join us in worship? You live, you die, you said in three days you would rise, you did, you're alive. You rule, you reign, you said you're coming back again, and I know you will, and all the earth will sing your praises. sins away, oh God. You give, you gave your life away for us. You came down, you saved us through the 
because of your great love. You lived and you died. You said in three days you would rise. And you did. You're alive. You of your great love. You lived, you died, you said in three days you would rise, and you did, you're alive. You Savior, hear our cry. Our faith is feeble, we confess. We faintly trust thy
speed. 
was a great time of worship right there. I'm hoping that um, everybody's hearts felt lifted up to the Lord. This is our goal um, for the day, um, to praise our Lord and Savior. Uh, now we're going to turn our, our minds to our corporate prayer, which should be up on the slide for you. Um, this is, comes from uh, a book uh, from Rachel Jones, her book, Five Things to Pray for Your World. And of course, we're going to pray the parts that are in bold print. That'll be prayed and spoken in unison. And the first thing we'll do is recite 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6 together. So if you could read that together. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world and for this congregation. We pray for religious liberty for all peoples and for all governments everywhere to secure the freedom to worship. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, as we face another presidential election this week, we pray for our country. Your word urges us to give thanks for our rulers, so we do that now. We pray that you would give us a good government that provides order restrains wickedness, facilitates compassion, and protects the vulnerable, as these are all things God loves. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray that you would use our government's policies to improve the lives of the poor and to promote peace, peace between nations, peace between communities, and peace within families. Lord, hear our prayer. Then, Lord, we pray that all those running for office, especially the candidate for president, Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, that they would see their need of the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all and would come to him for salvation, be renewed in real faith, and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
come to you, Lord, seeking your grace and seeking your mercy. We ask you for leaders and rulers over us today to direct the worldly affairs of our hearts. But oftentimes, Father, we forget to turn our eyes to you, who is the true sovereign and the true king. We're guilty, Father, of so many times blaming uh, our situation, Father, on, on the world around us when oftentimes we blame ourselves and our own hearts when we get right with you. We ask, Lord, that you give us clarity, give us vision, give us, give us direction, Father, as we seek to be of this world and not of yours. Help our focus to be not so much on your politics, but rather on the gospel that you've given us to believe. I pray, Father, that we would have good leaders, and I pray, Father, that we would have uh, a safe nation in which to raise our children and to, to live and to, to prosper in you and love you. But I pray more especially, Father, that you would be releasing your women of wrath in our midst, because we know that you have all things under your hand and that you direct all things in your hand. And so whatever happens in the next four years, uh, we do not have control over, because we know that you watch over us and that you love us, and that ultimately your son Jesus sits on the throne and is the ruler of the whole presidents and emperors and prime ministers, if not now, will one day. And so we just ask for that confidence in our situation. Help us to remember that in the few weeks ahead. Help us to remember that in the journey that we lost, or, or even on the other end, Father, if we're rejoicing in the midst of things that are pray, Father, for our community, for our leadership, the other towns that people live within Wyoming. We pray for the places that people live who are watching over uh, live streaming. Father, we pray that as your believers that you would be with us over the next four years. Help us to have a ministry among your people who are proclaiming a message of hope, proclaiming the gospel of peace, proclaiming the words that you've given us to speak to one another. I pray, Father, for school system. I pray for um, the students who have already started to return to school. I pray for those students who will be returning in December that they possibly could enjoy you there. And I just pray, Father, that you would help the schools be as prepared as they can be and as safe as they can be. I pray, Lord, that this whole situation with the, the COVID virus, whatever your purposes are for that, Father, I pray that we would not fail to do our, our duty as your servants, Lord, to proclaim confidence and not fear, to proclaim wisdom and not uh, just falling to the whims of the moment. Help us to be a light in the darkness and help us as we do go back to school as teachers and as students to, to do that with confidence. I pray, Father, of this church, I pray that you would help us to continue to minister to the people that come to our church, and I pray that you would help us to do so with those who are, are seeking a place where they can worship the God of the world.
God, all of these spoken requests and all of our unspoken requests, we present to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Quick, quick. can dismiss our uh, younger children to children's church at this time that would be great everyone else if you would turn to first corinthians chapter 11 would also be great Okay, this is a passage that you're well familiar with and that you will hear later because this is our uh, text that we normally read when we have the Lord's Supper, which we'll have uh, later on this morning. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, that today. So let's begin 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 32. Please listen carefully as this is the word of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we've come to your word, and today we find a familiar passage for many, yet a passage that seems to consistently divide Christians and churches. Help us to see the meaning of your body and blood and what that means for us today and how the Lord's Supper serves to renew and strengthen our faith. Help us to see our own need of this means of grace. Help us to know you more through 1 Corinthians 11. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us through Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, for one family, the space between life and death is filled with more shock than usual. After a serious car accident, Carlos Camillo was pronounced dead at the scene. And officials released the body to the morgue and a routine autopsy was ordered. But as soon as the coroners began the autopsy, they realized something was wrong. The body was bleeding. So without using any anesthesia, they quickly stitched up the wounds to stop the bleeding, a procedure that jarred the man awake. Equally jarred awake was Camillo's wife, who came to the morgue to identify her husband's body and instead found him sitting in the hallway, alive. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, this year, Joanne and I have been watching NCIS and NCIS Los Angeles and NCIS New Orleans. And we have now been saturated with countless forensic images. So this scene comes vividly to mind. But equally vivid is the scientific principle utilized by the doctors in the morgue. Blood is unique in a morgue because the dead do not bleed. That's a sign of the living. Now, the thought and practice of the Old Testament often revolves around a similar understanding. Life is in the blood. It is this notion that informs the expression that blood is on one's hands when a life has been wrongfully taken. When Cain killed his brother Abel, as we saw at the beginning of this series, God confronted him, Genesis 4.10. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There is a general understanding in the Bible that blood is the very substance of life. There's life and there is power in the blood. Now, the notion of blood and its power can be seen in the language of sacrifice and offering found throughout the Old Testament. Just as it was understood that life exists in the blood, there was an understanding of our need, <coughs> excuse me, our need for the power of the blood, a need in our lives for atonement, which means there's a need to remove the guilt of sin. But the blood of Israel's sacrifices is not like the blood shed by those attempting to appease and approach the false gods that they feared and followed. 
in the Old Testament, the prophets were forever insisting that God wanted more than the empty performance of sacrifice. God desired those offerings to represent the heart of the worshiper, one who yearns to be fully alive in the presence of the creator. And the blood of a sacrifice made this possible in a limited temporal way, but that God would provide an unlimited, eternal way. So when the New Testament speaks of Christ as the Lamb of God, it is meant to be a description that moves beyond symbolism. Christ is the Lamb whose blood cries out with enough life and enough power to atone for the depravity of the world. He is the lamb who comes to the cross alive and aware and with his blood moves us forever into the presence of God. There is life in the blood of Christ. There is power in the blood, as the old hymn says, and he has freely given it. And Jesus said this to a crowd that would understand this concept uh, from John 6, part of our responsive reading this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Mr. Cameo bled because he was living. His pain was equally a sign of life. And when you consider your own pain or the many ways in which you have bled as someone who's both fragile and mortal, you see it as a sign of life, something shared with the one who suffered in every way. When you consider the elements of the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood, or the story of Jesus being led to the cross, do you see someone very much alive, bleeding, and conscious? When you consider standing before the throne of heaven, as Revelation 5 says, standing before the lamb who looks as one who has been slain. Will you bow before he who forever bears the scars of your atonement, whose blood offers you life itself? The lamb of God is not dead and buried, but living and active, beckoning a broken world to his wounded side, for indeed the dead don't bleed. So why do these instructions for the Lord's Supper make their way into our series on misused stories of the Bible? Well, for two reasons. The first is a theological debate over what constitutes the presence of Christ. And the second is a biblical debate over the words body and blood and what they mean. And what makes it most difficult is that the theological debate is based on the biblical debate. So first of all, the instructions here in 1 Corinthians 11 are often read in light of a story found in the Gospel of John, in John 6. As we've already read, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now one of the principles of biblical interpretation is that the teaching or prescriptive passages, like those found in Romans, are used to understand the narrative or the descriptive passages, like those found in Acts. And the misuse and misinterpretation of today's passage 
comes about because we get that principle reversed. We use a descriptive passage about being united to Christ, which is John 6, what it's really about, to interpret a prescriptive passage about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. And so because we've done it backwards, we've got a major theological argument in the church for hundreds of years coming to a head during the time of the Reformation. Now, yesterday was Reformation Day, and that's because 503 years ago, on October 31st, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church, more commonly known as Castle Church, in Wittenberg, Germany. And the Protestant Reformation was a rediscovery of the doctrine of justification, that is, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, after justification, there's no issue more fiercely debated during the Reformation than the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And although the Reformers did not always agree among themselves as to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, they were unified in their opposition to the Roman Catholic notion of transubstantiation. Using categories borrowed from Aristotle, Catholic theologians, and not in the, necessarily in the very early church, this is more of a medieval or middle ages doctrine that was developed, they taught that the substance of the bread and wine were changed while the physical properties remained the same. Thus the elements were transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ, but still retained the outer appearance of bread and wine. So according to Catholic teaching, when Jesus held up the bread and said, this is my body, he meant this loaf is my actual, real, physical flesh. Now, Protestants have long argued that Jesus was employing a figure of speech in the upper room. Just as I am the good shepherd doesn't mean Jesus tended little animals, and I am the gate didn't mean Jesus swung on hinges, and whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water didn't mean that the disciples are going to rupture a valve with H2O. Uh, H2O. This is my body doesn't mean that this loaf is my actual real physical flesh. Now Martin Luther and his followers rejected transubstantiation, but they didn't completely reject a real physical presence of Christ, which is known as consubstantiation. In affirming consubstantiation, Lutherans have argued, though the bread remains real bread and the wine remains real wine, nevertheless, the physical presence of Christ is there also in, with, and under the elements. Now, in contrast to that view, another reformer has a third view called the memorial view, usually attributed to a man named Ulrich Zwingli. Although there's some debate over what Zwingli actually thought, but he gets the credit for it one way or the other. And in this view, communion is simply a feast of remembrance. There's nothing mystical, there's no real presence to fuss about. The bread and wine remain plain old bread and wine. They serve as a reminder of Christ's sacrifice, a memorial to his death for our sins. Now the fourth view, which is known as the Reformed view, and what this denomination believes to be the correct view is normally associated with John Calvin. Now, Calvin also believed the supper was a feast of remembrance, 
but he believed it was a feast of communion too. He believed in a real spiritual presence whereby we feast on Christ by faith and experience his presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, no one doubts that the Lord's Supper uh, is, at least in part, a memorial. In our passage today, we'll remember the Last Supper. We remember Christ's death. We remember his passion in the past. We proclaim his death until he comes again in the future. But the Lord's Supper is more than mere remembrance. The text uses the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we read, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation, koinonia, in the body of Christ? When we drink the cup and eat the bread, we participate in, we have fellowship with, the body and blood of Christ. We are united to him and experience a deep spiritual koinonia with him. We gain spiritual nourishment from him, as John 6 says, and we unite as believers around him. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And what that means is Christ is truly present with us at the table. It's a spiritual presence. Now, as important as it is to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper, it's just as important to understand it's a supper that we're celebrating. This sacramental feast is a meal, not a sacrifice. The last sentence that I had said before, that Christ is truly present with us at the table, is essential. And not just because of Christ's presence, but because of that last word, table. In celebrating communion, we come to a table, not an altar. Among all the critical uh, rediscoveries during the Reformation, it's easy to overlook the importance of recovering the Lord's Supper as a covenantal meal, not uh, just a representing of Christ's atoning death. And with all the elements, the bread and the cup, distributed to every believer before the Reformation, only the bread was distributed. The cup was reserved for the clergy. It was withheld from the laity. That's you. And the Lord's Supper now acts as a family table where we can enjoy fellowship with each other and with our host partaking of the blessings purchased for us at the cross. Now, I fear that in too many churches today, the Lord's Supper is either celebrated so infrequently as to be forgotten or celebrated with such thoughtless monotony that Christians endure it rather than enjoy it. The Lord's Supper is meant to nourish and strengthen us. Now, we went six months without the Lord's Supper. And I remember in September, the first time we did it when we came back, how many of you came to me and said, it was so good to take the Lord's Supper again. I wasn't sure that I had missed it until we came back together and had it. And it was such a blessing. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to nourish and strengthen us. The Lord knows our faith is weak. 
And that's why he's given us sacraments to see and to taste and to touch. And as surely as you can see the bread and the cup, just as surely does God love you through Christ. And as surely as you eat the bread and drink the cup, just as surely as Christ died for you. And here at the table, the faith becomes sight. The simple bread and cup give assurances that Christ came for you, Christ died for you, and Christ is coming again for you. And whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we not only proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, we ourselves are reconvinced of God's provision for us on the cross. Don't discount what really amount to God's preferred visual aids, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are instituted by Christ himself. And pastors who ignore the sacraments or never instruct the congregation to understand and appreciate them are robbing God's people of tremendous encouragement in the faith. It's meant to be a blessing to hear the gospel and to see it and to taste it and touch it. Of course, eating and drinking has to be undertaken in faith in order for it to be effectual. The elements themselves don't save us. But when we eat and drink in faith, we can be assured we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. More than that, we get a picture of our union with Christ. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we have communion with him, not by dragging Christ down from heaven, by experiencing his presence through the Holy Spirit. So let us not come to the Lord's Supper with low expectations. If you shed a tear at the table, let it not be out of boredom but out of gratitude and wonder and delight. So now we've looked at the Lord's Supper from a theological perspective. Let's go back to our text and see what the Apostle Paul has written to us. He's answering the question of not only what we're doing, but why. So turn with me again to 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, and let's see what we're actually being taught here about the Lord's Supper. And Paul starts with remembering. Remembering, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So first, what's clear in these verses is there's a great emphasis on the importance of remembering. And in specific, remembering Christ's death. I'm persuaded one of the reasons the Lord gave us this simple rite is because he saw the church would inevitably be involved in all kinds of things. Good things, but things that would sort of lead us away from the very basics of the faith. You think about all the kinds of things the churches have to deal with in the course of a year. The full range of Christian doctrine. They have to be preaching and teaching on the spirit, preaching and teaching on the family and relationship, preaching and teaching on evangelism and the doctrine of God and life and death. And we need to preach and teach on so many things. It's easy to forget the basics when you're trying to check off all the boxes. Then there are the pragmatic things. 
We still have to deal with church finances. We have plans and programs and events. There's various ministries and uh, committees and community groups. And then we have the concerns of Presbytery and General Assembly and on and on it goes. And you can go from one year to the next and never spend more than a few minutes meditating on the death of Christ. And here Jesus is insisting that we go back to the basics. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in some ways, it's tragic beyond words that he felt we needed something like this. Shall we forget him? Shall we overlook the cross? But we do forget. And we do overlook. How can we play our petty relational games when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be so unconcerned about our lost friends and neighbors when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be unconcerned about living holy lives when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be unmoved by the love of God when we remember Christ and his cross? When he said, here's the bread and the cup, that was expected. At Passover, you had a bread and you had a cup, but there was no lamb at the Last Supper. Why? Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, I am he. This is a night unlike all other nights. Because when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, I'm the main course. What he's saying is, I'm the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist had originally announced him. I'm the one. And therefore, on that night, Christ was telling us, my death is the climactic event towards which everything in the history of salvation has been moving until now. Every sacrifice, every liberation, every prophet, every priest, every king, every deliverer has been pointing to me. Because tonight I'm not just going to deliver you from this or that slavery or this or that social or economic problem or this or that mental or emotional idolatry. This night, I'm going to deal with sin and death itself. This is a night unlike all other nights. When you take the bread and the cup, there's a direct connection between what's happening here and now and what happened at the Last Supper. And we're not supposed to forget that. We start with remembering. And then we move on to proclaiming, verse 26. Proclaiming. We read that verse, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the word for proclaim there is the regular word for preaching, for heralding, for evangelizing. But how can that be? Because the Lord's Supper is for Christians. Well, we may have non-Christians at our worship services. We usually do. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, they're warned not to come to the table without faith in Christ. And so if this is the first time you're in our church, you're going to find what we do a bit strange. Let me explain it to you. We're all going to take a little bit of bread and eat it. And we're all going to take a little cup and drink that. And the reason we do that is because Jesus told us to. Now, he didn't tell us to because it's magic. But because we recognize that this is fundamentally important 
to think back to Jesus' death and remember what it means. Now, if you're not a Christian, it would, quite frankly, be blasphemous for you to take the elements. But you ought to watch as the Christians around you take the elements, not because they're any better than anyone else, but because they know they've been forgiven by this Christ who gave his life on their behalf. And so they remember, and they repent, and they come to the table. And as you watch, you'll hear and see the good news of God's redemption. Thus, every Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. That's what the text says. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, before COVID, we would physically get up and walk forward and come to the table and eat and drink the communion meal and pray, and now we're all doing it in our seats. But either way, it's still a physical action. And as such, it's a physical proclamation that you're a Christian who has faith in Christ, who repents of your sin, who is part of the church, and who strives to love the people here, even the ones you don't want to love. Taking the Lord's Supper is a physical proclamation of Christ and his cross. And if you don't want to do that, don't take it. Don't come to the table. So how do you know if you should come or not? Well, that's the next purpose here, verses 27 and 28. Examining. It says, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, it's important to understand that this text really does say in an unworthy manner. It's not that you or I are worthy or unworthy, but it's the manner of our approach. This is an adverb describing how we come, not an adjective describing who we are. Of course, we're unworthy. That's why Christ died. But there can be a worthy manner of coming to the table, and it's not based on any goodness in us. That's the point. How can we possibly come to the Lord's table and say, I remember, I remember that Christ died for my sins when in fact we're nurturing sin. To say, I remember that Christ died uh, for my bitterness when I'm nurturing bitterness. Or I remember that Christ died to forgive me of my self-centeredness when I love my self-centeredness. That's to approach in an unworthy manner. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we need forgiveness. No, we're not worthy in and of ourselves. But we dare not approach the Lord's Supper that focuses on Christ and his cross in a manner in which we don't care about the sin, which is still carefully nurtured and flourishing in our lives. So what then is a worthy manner? Well, we're told in verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Jesus is simply saying that unless you recognize the body and blood of the Lord to which these elements point, which these elements are designed to make you remember, then how can you take the elements and say, I remember when you're cherishing the sin that shows you've forgotten? <coughs> how wrong would it be for any of us to say, yes, Lord, I accept your forgiveness 
let me go out and sin some more because that's what I really want to do. But that's what we're doing when we come before these Lord and take the elements and, and taking them, proclaiming that we remember Christ and his cross and then go right back to the sinful habits and behaviors and thinking that we really want to keep clinging to them because they're ours. This is a time for self-examination. It's a time for confession. It's a time for repentance. It's a time for turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. So we remember, we proclaim, we examine, and finally we discern. That's the last point, discerning, verses 29 through 34. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. We forget that this is not just an individual exercise, but it is a corporate one. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of what Christ has accomplished in making us one. It doesn't make sense that we would eat the Lord's Supper while we're divided. When that happens, we sin against Christ by taking the Lord's Supper. And the reason we sin against Christ when we take the Lord's Supper while divided is because we've sinned against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 25, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The Apostle John said in 1 John 4, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Negatively, we're not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Positively, we're to discern the body of the Lord. That is, we're to come to communion understanding that even though this is just bread and a cup, we eat and drink believing the gospel that we get Jesus by faith. And he comes to us and nourishes us and strengthens us. And it's not just a mere memorial. It's a place where Christ, by his grace, in the power of the Holy Spirit, meets sinners and encourages and comforts and strengthens them to trust him. And if you understand that's what's going on, well, then it changes everything. You never come to the Lord's table with a kind of casual flippancy or division with your brothers and sisters or holding on to some sort of sin you refuse to repent of, all of which were taking place at the church in Corinth. Now, the word had come with reverence and awe and expectation and anticipation that as you eat the bread and drink the cup by grace, through faith, in Christ, then he himself will come to you and his spirit will sustain and strengthen you. This is the place you come to overcome sin and idolatry. Because you come to Christ and his cross and he has overcome your sin and your idolatry on, his, uh, on your behalf. 
this table is the antidote to idolatry. Knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for you, his perfect performance on your behalf is the power that will enable you to quit trying to find your identity in performance, appearance, acceptance, or perfection. Being declared right means everything good about Jesus is given to the believer. God now views the believer, his child, as perfect because Jesus was perfect. His child now stands without accusation or condemnation, but as righteous. And therefore, when a struggling teenager thinks that she has failed to measure up, Jesus has already measured up perfectly for her. When a believing man turns to the false idol of performance for, for his work, Jesus has never taken his eye off the Father for that man. When a woman looks to another for affirmation, Jesus has never bowed to another's opinion of him. Understanding the sacrifice is the key for that teen, that man, that woman to find their real worth and their true identity. None of these people, apart from the gospel, breaking in and reorient them to the truth of who Jesus is will find what they're looking for. The intensity and the drive to be great, to feel worthy, is only going to increase as time goes by. And instead of growing in maturity, we grow more and more in being self-obsessed and in being less secure. Only by the power of the gospel do we find everything we long for, everything we already have in Christ. Being filled in him, knowing his acceptance, his performance, his perfection given for you is what will enable you to stand no matter what the world says looking full into his wonderful face at his worth, at his work, will be what frees us from the idolatry of self and enables us to find our identity firmly rooted in the identity of our Savior. That happens when we come to this table. For it's here that Christ and his cross is remembered, proclaimed, and discerned. Now, in the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, you remember the movie better yet, the book. Pippin is in Minas Tirith, the capital of Gondor. They're under siege, and he's sure they're all going to die. There's all these horrible armies coming to besiege them. And at the last minute, he hears a horn in the distance, right? The horn of Rohan. And when he hears the horn, the knights of Rohan ride to the rescue in this mighty massed cavalry charge. And many die, but they break the siege and save the people, including Pippin. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's a quick summary. Now, in the book, but not the movie, we're told that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn in the distance without breaking into tears. Why? Because the horn was a physical an audible reminder of his salvation. And when he heard the horn in the distance, he relived his salvation. It connected him to the past. He remembered the sacrifices of the people who died to save him. No matter how grumpy he was, he wept in gratefulness whenever he heard a horn in the distance. 
Why? Because it reminded him that every single moment of the rest of his life was a gift of grace. This table is a horn in the distance. It's something you see. It's something you hear. It's something you taste. It's something you touch. This will connect you to your salvation and enable you to remember the sacrifice of the one who died to save you, and it will change your life. So come, remember, proclaim, discern. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about what Christ has done for you and then thank him in prayer. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there's times we take worship for granted, when our hearts are cold and our minds are elsewhere. There's times when we're indifferent towards you, or where our pride and prejudices disrupt our fellowship and make us loveless when we ought to be loving. Save us from the problems we see in the church in Corinth that required such a harsh rebuke. Help us to learn from, the, from your word so that we might not need to learn from hard providence. Teach us to remember your cross, proclaim your death, and repent of our sins. And as we come to the Lord's table, enable us to be nourished and strengthened by Christ, his body broken and his blood shed for us, as we come in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We're about to enter our time of offering to the Lord, uh, where we're going to offer our praises. And as you remember, there are boxes in the back where if you feel called to contribute to the ministry, we have um, offering boxes in the back where you can put that in. Uh, we thought we would introduce a new song for our offering today. Uh, it's new but old also. This, this song has been around since the 1800s. Uh, it's called Just As I Am. It's a hymn that many, many of you hopefully are familiar with. Um, but appended to that is a chorus um, called I Come Broken by the composer and singer Travis McFay. So maybe some of you are familiar with this. Maybe some of you aren't. We're going to sing it for you. Please join in with what you know. And then uh, listen if you don't know the, the chorus especially, and uh, we'll be singing it again so that you can hear it. This will also be our closing song, so you're going to have plenty of opportunity to hear it. So let's rise up and offer our worship and our praise and our offering of praise to our God.
Amen. Please be seated. Come now to our time for communion. I'm going to say goodbye to those folks on the live stream. God bless you. And we're going to turn now to coming to the Lord's table. Bill. Thank you, God. Just as I am.
receive God's blessings from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God bless you. Hopefully we'll see you this afternoon.